My name is Quan Huynh, the Executive Director for Defy Ventures. Our nonprofit, our mission is to shift mindsets to give people with criminal histories their best shot at a second chance. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Huynh. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over. Well, I grew up in Provo, Utah, so I didn't uh, really appreciate what being Vietnamese was until many years later uh, in my journey. Um, but now living in Orange County, seeing what our community has created, seeing um, the culture that uh, we still embody and, 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 and how we can still be here in the United States, but yet have our own separate culture. Um, to me, it means that I, I still have a piece of of some type of culture outside of just being um, Americanized. How old were you when you came to the U.S.? I came to the U.S. when I was only several months old. We, our family just lost the, the war. Uh, we lost the country and uh, my mother and father, I was the firstborn and we settled in, out in Provo, Utah of all places. And what was it like for you growing up in Provo? Well, uh, Provo was was a beautiful place. Like when I look back now, it's it's a beautiful state. There's some beautiful people. Uh, yet I did experience what I do now know to be uh, racism. Um, so I imagine, because remember the Vietnam War was probably on the news and everything. Um, and then here we are, some Vietnamese family out there, Provo, Utah. Everything's on the news. So uh, it was not um, abnormal for me to. I remember growing up. Um, having people tell my uncle or my father like in the stores <clears throat> or on the street at the gas station, go home, get out of our country. Um, that, that happened quite often to me. Even as a little kid, we had uh, uh, older kids and adults telling us to get out of the country, that we didn't belong there. Do you think that that created some sort of anger or some latent um, fierce feelings of rebellion against society, American society, as you grew older? and Yeah, I, I would say I contributed to it. I, I mean, um, that, like some of the instances of racism, but one of them in particular that, that I know contributed to the way I saw uh, the, the world outside our family as a, a young kid was uh, when my brother and I... Um, got beat up by some older kids. It was actually my brother got beat up. I, I stood there and didn't do anything. It was my younger brother. Um, they shoved dirt in his mouth. We, him and I were just playing with our GI Joes in the, um, in the river. And uh, when I went home, my dad asked, found out what happened. And when he found out that my brother had got beat up and that I didn't do anything, um, he was like, how could you let this happen to your brother? How could you let this happen to your family? You're supposed to protect your family at all costs. So I know it was my father's intent, but for me that that I felt so ashamed. I let my family down. I let my father down. I let my little brother down. And I just remember growing up, like later on, my brother and I, it was almost like a trigger. If someone threatened us or if somebody said anything to do with like uh, 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 mimicking the way we talk or in King Chong Chong, whatever, it would just we'd go from zero to 10 and we'd, be, we'd start fighting. And I never understood why it was just always, and it wasn't until years later of understanding and reflecting, like, why did I feel this way? 
Um, and it was just always a sense of protecting my family, protecting our, our race, our culture. Um, and I think that is the same mentality I took later into the, the Vietnamese gangs. But unfortunately, the irony there is we weren't protecting our communities. We were terrorizing our communities and we're, we're preying on each other. And it was just like, oh, this is a gang thing. This is, so it was, it was that same distorted way of, of protection and, and feeling like we have to prove ourselves. Because I guess for me, there was a sense that I, I didn't fit in in this society. Um, I didn't fit in somehow or there's something wrong with me and I just don't fit in. When I think about the gangs of the, of the 90s, the Vietnamese gangs, sometimes I felt like parents just went off to work and, you know, they, they really didn't have a problem with their children per, per se, but they just weren't there. And the kids, due to circumstances like what you went through with the brother, had to protect each other and protect people that look like you, you know, your own tribe. Mm -hmm. And then one thing leads to another where you get so engrossed in it that you become part of the gangs that really protect each other. Now, do you think any of this has anything to do with parental upbringing, uh, a failure on their part to not, not particularly like intentional failure, like they didn't care, but sort of like the inability to have like a real conversation with their children and then it led you wayward or is it do you think it's more society at the time that really launched you in so the question is is it do you think it's more parental uh pressures of of in, inside your family or is it more societal pressures that you felt yes there's some parental failures but i think failures from the lens of an american society failure let's say cuz I, I imagine like my my mother's over here lost her country. This is how they raised, like the culture in Vietnam is like, oh, just go to school, you're supposed to show up and just be good or however it is. And then over here, there's this culture clash of like independence and and, and choosing for yourself and, you know, um, not having family be at the epicenter of everything. So, um, and then compounding that with my father being, uh, uh, had having passed away from leukemia at 13. So I think for my mom, um, I think it'd be unfair to say it's a failure on her part, but then yet she had to work to to full time to take care of three kids after after uh, after being a widow. So yeah, I think it's just it was just a perfect mixture of yeah. kids that are lost in this new country, like uh, a culture where we don't know like wait where where do I fit in? What is our culture? Where is my tribe? Like. Um, all of that and suddenly going to school and, uh, you know, my the transition from Utah with having no kids of my race looking like me coming out here to California at the age of 10 um, and for the first time going to school with other Vietnamese kids and they're speaking Vietnamese and my Vietnamese is not as uh, I couldn't speak Vietnamese as as good at the time. So they're telling me you're whitewashed. And so there was I think for me, there was always this sense of. I don't fit in wherever wherever I go, and I, that is what really drew me like to the gangs later. Where in myself, I remember telling myself, "This is I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. This is my family. This is my extended family. This is my gang. This is my the group that I'm protecting, regardless." Well, can you give me some historical sort of setup of the life that you led before you got incarcerated, all the way up until? Um, you finally get into jail? 
what does I would say every Vietnamese uh, parent want for their kid is to go to school, get good grades, and that's what I strive for. Um, and yet there was a part of me that, um, especially after my father passed away from leukemia, um, you know, looking back now, there was no asking how are you feeling, um, no way to process his his death. It was like, okay, your father's passed away. I go to the funeral, I'm not crying. My uncles, my father's friends telling me, you're such a strong kid. Uh, you're not crying. So that in me reinforced, wait, this, this feeling of wanting to scream, wanting to cry means I'm weak. So I have to suppress it. I have to push it away somewhere mm. and just not talking about it. So it was, it was a very unhealthy um unhealthy way for for I think our whole family to be unable to mourn my father's death and then compound that with pressures of wanting to do good in school um, and then yet wanting to fit in in school and just wanting to be a kid and have fun so there was all these things that were drawing at me there's a part like I was angry at my mother my uh, for for telling me that just pray uh, at church and my father's going to pat, uh, he's going to be okay, angry at God for letting my father die, angry at my father for dying. And yet now there's this other pressure. What am I going to do with my life? Oh, you have to go to school. You have to get a job. You have to be good. You have to raise me. You know, I have to raise my mom now. I have to take care of my younger brother and sister. And then there's the the other part of my life, of, the, of my peers, like, okay, these are the guys that I hang out with. This is where we have fun. I feel like I fit in. So it was, uh, uh, for me, it was a lot of confusion, um, not feeling like I fit in, yet wanting to fit in everywhere, wanting to please my mom, wanting to please uh, my friends, wanting to please society. And so it's it's almost like becoming a chameleon in different social circles, just doing whatever I could to, to please or, 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 or to want to uh, uh, look like okay i think they'll like me if i show as this type of person if we read your book uh, sparrow and the razor wire we can get a full account of what you've done you know from a to z we, we get the full picture how much of that can or should we share right now with our audience to give more of a context of what happened um we could share whatever uh like i like i told you there's really nothing uh, you can ask me that the pro board already hasn't. So um, I'm an I'm an, I'm an open book. Wonderful. So I'll I'll let's just get to it then. What happened that led you to incarceration? Um, I shot and killed a man by the name of uh, Min Wing in L.A. and tried to shoot his three friends. Um, it was after a nightclub. I had gone up with some of my friends, uh, some of my gang associates. We were at a club in Los Angeles. Uh, I found out that when I came out of the club that night, I found out some of them had gotten into a fight with another group. Um, both sides were saying what gangs they were from. And um, although we didn't have beef with each other because we already fought now, in, in my mind, we had beef. Um, of, uh, about a few weeks previous to that night, I had been turned down for a management position at this company I was working for. And up until that moment, um, 
my life up until that moment after my father's death and there was like this this sense of I just want to do something right for once I want to to um I want to be successful whatever success meant so this management position to me at the time meant success it meant everything to me like I want this this is gonna make my life right for once because up until that moment I had already been arrested at the age of 17 and going in and out of like juvenile hall, the California Youth Authority, and for um, this company to offer me a management position. So I remember I interviewed for it um, and they came back and their exact words, because they do their their interviews, it's not like a typical interview where they're just asking you like uh, different things. This thing was a personality-based interview. So it's all personality of what color do you is uh, do you think of when you hear this word and and what do you like to do when you're driving and like it's all so when it came back it says you are not a fit and that's just the wording and the language they use but for me it touched on that core I don't fit I don't fit um so I was very angry very sad um I did whatever I know to how to cope at the time. I remember I, I I was so ashamed. I didn't tell my girlfriend about it at the time. Didn't talk to my mom that I'd been turned down. I went down to the bar near uh, work, just drank, got drunk and um, shoved those feelings away. So it was a few weeks later when this incident happened at the nightclub. And it took years of, uh, of reflection to figure out what motivated me. Cause at the time and for years during my prison sentence, I used to say, Oh, it was because it's the same thing. It was my life or theirs. But it really wasn't because when I found out they got in a fight, I'm the one that pushed for, hey, let's follow them. Let's see where they go. We're going to, when we followed them for like 20 something miles on the freeway before I opened fire. When, and for me, it was like, okay, you know what? I may feel like a failure in this part of my life where I don't fit, but in this part of my life, in the gang, this is where I could fit in. This is where I could show that I, am somebody that I am not a failure. And at the same time, I could take out all these feelings of frustration, shame, anger, whatever it is, the fact that I didn't have any uh, words to describe out on somebody. And to me, it that was a, a, a perfect way to, this is, I could hide my violence on others through the game. And this is the way I could process or a way to let out these emotions that I've, I've shoved away. No, that's, that's the way I see it. You know, what's, uh, what's incredible is having that duality of being a student applying for a management position at a corporate job, and then having this really active and robust gang life. Can you talk a little bit about that duality? Like, how did people in the gangs view you as somebody? Did they know about your academic uh, aspirations? And did the people on the student life, you know, in that corner of your, 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 your life know about your gang life? How did the two worlds exist simultaneously up until the, up until the age of 19? Some of my, the, some of my own homeboys on the gang, we went to some of the same community colleges together. Um, so they knew, I think even with them, like, um, I remember my my homies were like, "How does Quan do so good in school? Like, damn, you should uh, you you should apply yourself better, you know." So if I had even been told like by some of um, my close friends, like, "Hey, you shouldn't be involved with this stuff. 
you should try to walk away. And for part of me is like, well, I don't know how to walk away really. And what do I do if I walk away? Um, I, I, I don't feel like I fit in, 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 in this college scene. Um, some of them are here. So for me, it's like, okay, I could, but yet there's also, I think uh, a shallow part of me, like, okay, I like that I'm getting recognition that I was doing good in school and that they tell me I'm smart and that uh, they tell me that I can amount to something. But then in the schools itself, like with other college students that are doing well, I wasn't uh, as smart as them. You know the saying where um, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Well, me, I'd like to stay in the room and be the smartest person. And that was that was that was the problem with me at the time existence to me is so baffling because you know your aspirations to get that management job is so strong and then the rage that you experience of not fitting in is also equally as strong so when one didn't happen the other life basically took over and that's a very scary thing because you know we have these things that change the entire course of our lives and we have no idea when we're sitting in it that yeah. our lives are going to be like altered forever mm -hmm. yeah when i look back it's like for me i had no sense of grit resiliency um didn't deal well with failure it was just uh, uh yeah I, it was more about um this facade that i wanted to put up and if reality didn't match that facade then for me it's like okay well reality is wrong let me let me bend it to my own will and do what i want you know this idea of grit and resiliency uh of not having it do you think it's the lack of your father not being there or um this is just something that even if he was alive that it wouldn't even matter I think there, like when I, I think about it, like would, how my life would have been different had my father been around, I would have to say uh, um, he, he would have at least instilled in me some sense of, okay, this is what it means to be a man. This is how it means, this is what it means to take ownership. This is what responsibility is. If my father had not passed away, um, I, I I would guess my life may have been much different. You know, the book, again, like I, I've mentioned earlier, the book really details and chronicles your journey um, from, from start to finish. But for me, the most beautiful aspect of the book is the journey of discovering what would get you eventually out of prison. That whole journey, the, the context of kind of finding your true self through reading the transcripts of previous people, previous inmates that didn't get out and previous inmates that did get out, you were able to compare. For me, that was the whole uh, sticky factor for me of the book was understanding that transformation because it has so much implications to the real world. The mm -hmm. ability to really dig down and find the truth for yourself regardless of what people, the parole board, or anything, the outcome, the most important thing is that whole journey of discovering who am I really and what does it take to really become a human being who's processed all of the things that have happened. Can you walk me through 
how you began to think about that journey of transformation while you were in prison. Well, to be clear, I didn't think about how to uh, my crime or anything for like 10, 12 years of my sentence uh, for the first 10, 12 years um, because I was given a life sentence. Uh, I was found guilty of second degree murder, uh, 15 years to life, which at the time in California basically was the same as a death sentence. Um, the state of California had not paroled one single lifetime prisoner since 1977. So all of us thought we were washed up. None of us are ever going to go home, whether it's 15 years to life, 100 years to life, life without possibility of parole. We were all in the same boat. We were not going home. The only difference is someone that has a life sentence with the possibility of parole means they just go in front of the parole board, but you were not going to go home. That was our belief. Um because nobody since 1977 had ever gotten a parole hearing and gotten out. Nope. Not until 2007, there was a landmark ruling that came down. There was a, a, a woman uh, that was incarcerated uh, named uh, Sandra Lawrence that uh, actually argued the same thing to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court took a look. Wait, this is 30 years of data we have here. This is true. They, California has not paroled anybody. And what are the reasons why? So then they said, that's one of the first cracks open where they said, we're going to uh, look into California's uh, um, parole system to see what someone has to do to be able to go home. Because this is not the intent of the law when it was written. Because it became very politicized because uh, a parole commissioner can find someone suitable, then the governor will poll the date. But then a commissioner that continues to find people suitable to go home, the governor can also uh, uh, say, oh, you're not a good commissioner and we remove them. So, wow. um, so I remember reading the landmark ruling and then they, the Supreme Court said, well, these are the factors of suitability. Like the person had the first time getting arrested, has gotten higher education, uh, no violence uh, uh, during incarceration, like all these things. And then they put on this other list, these are factors of unsuitability, multiple arrests, gang member, and all these things. And I fell under every, I checked off all the boxes. So even in seeing the landmark ruling, I go, this does not apply to me. I will still never get out. And it would not apply to 95% of the men that were incarcerated because how can you go your whole sentence without getting right up or anything? Um, and then we started hearing rumors of, Oh, this one person was released, and then another guy knows somebody that knows somebody that got released. Um, so it's still something like that seemed very vague and far off. So I didn't really pay much attention to it. Um, around the tenth, twelfth year of my prison sentence, uh, several things happened. Um, I got, I think I received a. a I remember seeing a picture of my niece that was born. Um, it was my brother's daughter. And it's the first time I saw a picture of her. Uh, looked like a spitting image of my brother as a little kid. And it took me back to childhood. Um, and also uh, got word around that time of my grandfather, my father's father passing away. And then I asked myself, like, how did my life end up like this? Am I meant to die in prison? Like, what what the hell happened? Like, you know, seeing the childhood, remembering my father, seeing my grandfather, is this it for me? Is this the end of the road? Like, I'm just going to be an old person, an old man, just die up in here, never get out. Um, the one thing that gave me escape throughout prison years are books. I've always been a bookworm. 
as a little kid growing up, that's how I felt. So um, I have this tendency to do books to um, go down rabbit trails. Like I'll read a book, look at the acknowledgments, see who else influenced the writing, see who else, uh, 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 what other books look interesting. So then I go down these rabbit trails and, and read. So it was around that time uh, I was reading um, books uh, on entrepreneurs, how they created their businesses, um, uh, in particular stories about saints that had failed in their lives, but then had gone to create uh, huge legacies and create orders of the church. Um, and I became very fascinated with, with those stories. And of course, those led me into other rabbit trails on books on mindfulness and personal development and meditation. Um, so these all became like a perfect brewing, uh, I would have to say, for my my head, my heart, my soul, whatever. I was going out to a medical ducket. It was a nice morning. And I was like, why do I have to view prison as punishment? Why can't this be a place where I can remake myself, even if I'm supposed to die? Um, and of course, that's from the universe comes back. Yeah, you can, you know. So I remember that moment distinctly. Uh, the sun was up over the hills. I could feel the warmth on my skin. On the individual blades of grass, I could see the drops of dew. And up above me in the razor wire, I heard a sparrow chirping. One habit of mine that provided me escape throughout all my prison years and uh, all my incarceration time our books. I've always been a bookworm my whole life. Um, so that's what provided me escape. One other thing that this habit I had with books, though, is I go down these rabbit trails, like I'll finish a book, really love it, go to the back of the acknowledgments, see what other books the author cites, see what influenced them, and jump and dive into those books and just get lost. And then I just, there's a whole different world that I just get into. So um, during that time, I suddenly became fascinated with books on entrepreneurship and uh, in reading books on, on entrepreneurs and, and, and these, these men or women that had created these uh, companies and became quite successful. I also somehow started going down these other rabbit trails and stumbled on the books on the saints. And in particular, stories about saints that had failed in their lives, but yet had gone on to create these amazing, amazing legacies uh, and create these orders of the church. So those really fascinated me. But of course, the rabbit trails led me down to other books on mindfulness, spirituality, uh, meditation, uh, personal development. And these, I would have to say, became a perfect brewing of a storm for my heart, my mind, my soul, um, just reading them. And it was early in the morning, one one day in the yard, I was going to a, a medical appointment. And my head filled up with these teachings, uh, my mind, because I, I, I started to take up uh, meditation and things like that. And I, I, I looked and asked myself, like, why do I have to view uh, prison as punishment? Why can't this be a place where I begin, begin to remake myself, even if I'm supposed to die in here? Wow. And of course, the answer from the universe comes back is that you can. So um, I remember distinctly the moment the, the sun was coming up over the hills. Uh, I could feel the warmth on my skin. Uh, in the individual blades of grass, I could see the little drops of dew. And up above me in the razor wire, 
I could hear a sparrow chirping. Um, and I tell everyone, like, you know, the sparrows have probably been chirping my whole prison term. I never heard it. But that day, I heard the sparrow. Um, and I would have to say from that day forth, prison was no longer this cold, harsh, ugly place. It became a place where I began to remake myself. I saw other men as human beings, many of them much further along on their journey. Some of them perhaps not even awakened yet. But that's how I begin to approach each day. What does the universe have in store for me today? What's the lesson from God today that I can learn to make myself better? And then I began to look at the books I was reading as if this is what I aspire to, why do I not practice it and try to embody it? Regardless if I'm going to, I remember I used to, uh, by the time I took up journaling and one of the prompts I always put to my journal is what can I, um, what, what can, what did I do well today? And where did I fail today? Intentionally using the word fail because knowing how I was so averse to anything being a failure in my life, but realizing now failure is just an opportunity to learn and iterate and continue to grow. Um, and that's how I approached each day. Uh, I also, during that time, um, checked in with a therapist, which in prison culture is viewed as soft because you're not supposed to see a therapist. There's something wrong with with you psychologically, if there's mental health issues, but uh, I wanted to begin processing my father's death. So I would have to say 25 years after my father passed away is when I began to be begin the grieving process. Um, going through that, I also became fascinated with books on grief and loss, especially in particular, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's model on grief and loss. Then I realized all around me, the men were also grieving and hadn't uh, didn't have a way to mourn their losses whether that's the loss of parent or family member that has passed on whether that's um the loss of uh, a wife or a partner that has left them children have grown up those of adult or, or adult years and now they're much older and they're elderly or even just the loss of friends that they made at a prison and being uprooted and sent to a different prison and having to make new friends so I saw all around me, everybody is in some type of pain, yet there is no way to process it. So um, I put together a syllabus, submitted it to the prison psychologist who loved it, and we created the prison's first ever grief and loss group. Um, when the first uh, group meeting came around and I got to see the impact of, of what I had been able to create, it made me feel alive for once wow like, wow this is where i can make an impact how long were you in prison at that time till you got this idea to create this probably it was probably the 12th 13th year of the sentence so far it was right around that time yeah so we created that of course then being the consummate bookworm i became fascinated on reading books on group facilitation and uh uh, uh other groups psychodynamics and just understanding that and applying that into groups that we were involved in. And then, so then we ended up, I ended up joining other self-help groups, creating other self-help groups. Um, and then suddenly here it is in the midst of a prison sentence with a life sentence. I'm creating groups, I'm facilitating groups. And I felt, you know what? I'm in this forgotten corner of the world. Nobody knows about me or any of us. 
but yet here I am, I can make an impact. I'm making a difference in people's lives. And I felt alive. I felt fulfilled. Um, I felt there was meaning and purpose in my life with the life sentence. And that's just how I approached each day. And um, yeah, so then it became for me just, okay, here is my opportunity to, yes, the outside world calls this a prison. I could view this as like, this is my monastery mountain retreat or however I want to approach this. This is a way for me to remake myself, um, even if I'm dying. And that's just, that's just how I approached it. And when you were going through this transformation, you didn't have any hope of getting out and seeing the light of day, right? Not at the time, no. It was just more like, okay, this is how I feel like there's meaning and purpose. I feel alive. I feel like I can make a difference. This is what I've been missing my whole life. This is now I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. Did you ever come across the book uh, by Viktor Frankl, uh, Man's Search for Meaning? Yes, yes. I, I That's a great book. It, one thing I, I I started documenting somewhere along my journey each of my uh, books that I read and I write like basically uh, one paragraph what's the book about and then uh, the next paragraph for me is what is my takeaway and how I want to apply I still have those those um, book reports right. and then later on when I came home and you know created my website, I uploaded everything on a book report. So if you look on my website, you could see each of my writings and I see how my mind evolved after each book and how I applied it. So then when I go back and reread it, I go, oh, this is where I began practicing this habit. And, it, and, and I could see, oh, this is how the journey went for me. That's beautiful. It reminds me of, um, you know, Viktor Frankl's men's search, you know, search for, for meaning because, you know, when you're locked in a concentration camp and you know you're going to die and you've recorded your thoughts at some point you kind of have to let go and go you know what death is imminent it's going to come mm -hmm. but now i'm going to create meaning out of the time mm -hmm. that i have left and it, yeah. it reminds me of your situation yeah well his was way worse in many many ways i would have to say but yeah yeah definitely i could i could see that but there are definitely parallels as well yeah. So when you started having this transformation, you began to look into the idea of the possibility of parole after, mm -hmm. you know, but even before we get to that, I want to ask you something about the 30 years of the, is it, it's not an official moratorium on letting people out for the parole. It was it an unofficial moratorium or is it just like people just did not care to, let yeah, it was, it, 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 I guess it was a mixture of all of that. Like, um, it was 1977. There was this uh, up until that in 1977, every single person in California had what's called an indeterminate sentence. So everybody had to see a parole board. So whether it's a, a robbery, a burglary, murder, everybody sees the parole board. Everybody is incentivized to do so do something to show the parole board that, that you're now suitable for parole. And there was a clear path to for parole. But they changed it. And it was called the in, indeterminate sentence law or determined sentence. I'm, I'm, I may be mixed, but in 1977, once it was signed, they say everybody has a determinate sentence except for these crimes. So everybody was like, okay, burglary, five years, robbery, seven years or whatever. And they do their time to go home. Indeterminate sentences were kidnapped, and uh, uh, and people that were convicted of murder. 
So there was no time, and suddenly it changed and, and made it become political because I think I don't know what other governor had had a lifer parole under his watch in a different state. I can't remember. It was around that time. I guess that that lifer came home and killed somebody. So then it became sensationalized on the news where you let a lifer out, and and this governor at the time was supposed to had presidential ambitions, and that just tanked his thing. So after that, nobody wants to parole a lifer. Um, so I I don't know the exact. I, I, I understand some of it from reading the history of it, but it was that time like there's nobody going home because nobody want no governor. Wanted governor to Pete take Wilson the heat. said the only lifer that will go home is the one that goes home in a casket. His exact words. So, but I yeah, wonder, so no governor um, wants to. I wonder almost how much of that is being affected by the prison sort of like the prison industrial complex. As well yes oh of course uh, then of course during, after the 70s the mass incarceration policies of the 80s and 90s the war on drugs and suddenly there's federal funding to build these prisons so it became that all of that ties in together got it got it so it's a it's a really a perfect storm of money of you know politics not wanting to look bad yeah. not wanting to lose elections locking up communities of color and 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 all of that Sad, and you think about the millions of men that lives were just completely taken away from them. And granted, people did their crime, but at the same time, their other states probably didn't go through sort of such a long moratorium, right? Yeah, there's some that that still don't uh, to this day. Oh, really? Yeah, and I think you know, just uh, uh, criminalizing uh, certain things, like look, the criminal criminalization of crack versus cocaine and then what that does to the communities of color and all of that too so and then using that as a war on drugs and then um yeah i want to know how you got to be so uh different from the prison population because thinking about the people that i've known or met or read about that have gone into a uh, prison you know we have this different perspective of who people are how did you sort of break the mold? And I understand being a bookworm is probably a lot to do with that. You know, this interest, this uh, real interest in reading and, and getting more knowledge um, out of the time that you were in have probably had a, a big deal. But beyond that, do you think, what, what else do you think separated you from the population that you were in? Um, I well, I want to make sure it's clear that I don't. I wouldn't view myself as different from them or any more special. I think what happened is I just saw opportunities and I pursued them. Whereas my previous life, pre-incarceration, pre-life sentence, I saw opportunities and 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 I didn't go after them. So I think I'm just a product of a of take seeing opportunities. And, and pursuing it, going after it. And there are many men, unfortunately, that do not. But um, the men that are now, um, there's some amazing, amazing human beings that are still incarcerated that may never go home that I left behind, um, that would never, you know, the world may never get to meet. Um, so in a that's perfect, how I look at it. In a perfect world, and I'm sure there's probably prison systems in other countries that probably execute a lot better than we do here in America. But in your mind, in a perfect world, somebody kills somebody. How do we deal with that? 
sort of at the end of it all, how do we deal with reform? What is your idea? What's your thoughts on rehabilitation of a human being? I'm a big uh, advocate of restorative justice principles where there's healing for all parties involved, the offender, the offender's family, um, the, the victims and the victim's uh, family. Um, I mean, if we go to the root of a penitentiary, um, it's supposed to be penance. You're supposed to be removed yeah. and, um, you know, understand what caused this. And then the community supposed to come together and provide the healing and embrace the person when they come back. But while at the same time providing healing for all parties involved, um, that's, that would be, you know, especially that would be the, the, the way I, I would want to approach it. I've mentioned this earlier in the podcast that your approach to getting the parole board was a journey. It wasn't in mm -hmm. a one year, it wasn't an overnight thing. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about yeah. how you got into the process, into the minds, into your own mind on how to transform in order to, because it's, it's very, it's a very uh, uh, complex thing to describe because on one hand, mm -hmm. it's not because I explained this to a few of my friends as I was researching your life and reading the book and I was talking to people and they're like, oh, so you game the system. But that's not what, what happened. That's not you, it's not about gaming the system, but it's about true transformation so that the board can see how this evolution of a human person has has become eligible to get out so can mm -hmm. you walk me through sort of like yeah. your journey on how you discovered uh this whole process i mean it's again uh for the audience that are listening it's all over the book and i suggest everybody pick up a copy of the book to to understand how complex this issue is but yeah just to hear your your journey i would love that yeah um so to give you your your context and your audience context the California prison system, the culture of the California prison system, men do not share their parole hearing transcripts. So when uh, uh, a man or a woman goes to the parole board, um, the whole hearing is transcribed and then they're given a transcript of the actual hearing, what was said, um, what the commissioner says, and and what was said by the, the person that's incarcerated. and. They lay out everything, they ask them the questions, whatever. So nobody shared transcripts with each other. Um, it's almost like you don't ask about it. It's, it's. I don't know why, but that's just how I was. So for me, I never knew what the prison system, the parole board system was like. It was like, okay, you just go in, you have to figure it out, just talk. So for some reason, one of my buddies who also was a book on him and I always shared books, one day, um, I remember he brought over to my bunk area seven of his transcripts. That's one for every time that he went to the parole board. He had been incarcerated like close to 30 years. And it's like, here, this, and I don't know why to this day, like what made him do it. Um, he, and when I opened it and read it, it suddenly opened my eyes to a different process. Like, wait, what he told me happens in the parole board and what I'm reading here are two different things. What he's told me he said to the parole board and what he actually said are two different things. So then it made me think about the human tendency 
to cast ourselves in a good light, um, the human tendency to twist or make an excuse to make ourselves look better. And I, I, in seeing that, I also saw, like it convicted me in my own self, like what am I still making excuses for in my life? Where am I still casting myself in a good light instead of um, just laying it all there? And as I was reading, I go, man, I think if he had just said this, they would appreciate this more. Um, if he had just been more upfront here, he would have been more genuine here. Oh, he's definitely not being honest here. They're going to deny him because of this. And as I'm reading, then at the end, when they're laying out why they denied him, it's everything that I kind of saw already. Mm. So then suddenly, that's just one transcript. Then I'm reading the second, third. And I go, I know why they're not letting us go is because we're not taking ownership of our actions. We are not here to retry the case. We're simply here to deter parole hearing. Why, why, why is this in there? To give you context on the California prison system, uh, men never shared their transcripts uh, with each other. I don't know why to this day. That was just a culture that nobody talked about it. Um, the transcripts is the actual parole hearing. They transcribe everything. So it says like presiding commissioner, what do they say? Then it says inmate, whatever, and what whatever the, the person says. So it transcribes everything. Um one of my buddies that also like to read books, him and I would always share books with each other. For some reason, one day, he decided to come and get, hand me his transcripts. Um, to this day, I don't know why, but he gave me seven transcripts, one for each time he went to the parole board. And the man had been incarcerated over like 30 something years already. So when I read it, it suddenly opened my eyes because what he told me happened in the parole board and what actually happened were two separate things. What he told me he said in the parole board and what he actually said were two separate things. So it made me realize about the human condition of wanting to cast ourselves in a good light, not in, not intentionally, but or intentionally, but sub, subconsciously making excuses for things we might have said or done, wanting to please others so all of these tied in and i'm reading it and not only that when i'm reading it i i saw like these were moments like they ask a question and i'm reading the transcript and i saw oh he's being dishonest here they're going to deny him to say this and cite mm -hmm. this and or other things when they're asking him like oh man if he had just owned this i think they would have appreciated him more they're not going to say he's genuine and then at the end of it the commissioners lay out why they denied parole and it was and suddenly touched on everything that i had already checked off in my mind and i go holy crap i see something here um and i read his other transcript and it was the same thing and i remember reading it at every transcript there was something the commissioners always started when they said we are not here to retry the case we're only here for suitability to determine your suitability but yet in talking with guys and what they talk about they always go back to their trial and the DA did, did this and they should not let this in and I never did this so I think for 20 30 40 years men that are incarcerated still tell themselves this narrative of what actually happened regardless whether it's true or not but I'm thinking and I'm suspecting it was not true because when I'm reading the transcripts I see this huge disparity so I went back to my friend and I told him hey I think I know why they're denying you parole. Wow. And 
he's like, really? Well, let's sit down. So him and I started sitting down and talking about the pro process. I'm asking him questions like the commissioners do. He's telling me, and I was like, no, that doesn't make sense. And I'm poking holes, but I could tell him like, this doesn't make sense. So guys saw what we're doing. I'm like, what are you ask, ask him, what are you and Quan doing in the day room? And Bobby tells them, oh, Quan's helping me prepare for the pro board. And the guys thought we were crazy. How can Quan help you when he's never gone to the pro board? You guys are crazy. That's I know that's what they thought. Then one of my other friends um, was coming up for a parole hearing. So he saw what we were doing. What are you guys doing? We're like, oh, we're going to uh, uh, like mock parole hearings. Um, so he, he also sits down and we started asking him questions. And I read his transcripts. I saw certain uh, um, places where he could have improved from his hearing and how he comes across. And I started telling him, dog, I think this is where you need to come across. Mm -hmm. This is where you need to own it. Or what he's saying, I go, this doesn't make sense. But you're telling me it's not true. Um, he took that in. We started doing these weekly meetings. And, you know, at, at the time, I didn't know like that's I was basically coaching them. Back then, we just called a board prep, but we didn't know. But I'm poking holes and asking them questions and asking them to reflect and come back. He goes to the pro board, my friend, and gets found suitable. And suddenly, um, it changed the perspective of that of everything that we were doing. Like, what? What's going on? Then guys started coming to sit with us. Okay, what is the process here? And then for me, it was like, I knew right away, give me your parole transcript. Give me your psych evaluation. The guys that didn't want to give it to me, I said, this is a waste of time because they're just going to tell me what happened. Yeah. And that to me was not accurate. And I said, to sit down, I want to see your parole transcript. I want to see your psych eval. Then I could ask questions. So we started um, doing, I started sitting with guys. And over those last few years, I would have to say, I was able to help about 10, 12, 14 men get found suitable and go home, which is not an insignificant amount, but 40,000 lifers in the state of California is a drop in a bucket. Um, and so for me, it was like, I understand what they're asking. I understand the level of responsibility that they want to get us to. Mm -hmm. So I know a lot of the men for their, their motivation is to go home. My motivation in sitting with them is like, yes, I know they want to go home. I have this amazing feeling of freedom inside already i want to get them there i want to poke at their narrative the script they've told themselves in their head and get them to that place so that regardless of the pro board lets them home or not they've come to a place of self-acceptance self-forgiveness and just being okay with where they're at so there were many more men that were that were not paroled that got to that place that i'm uh, happy because then they could help other guys get to that place so that's that was my main motivation in in sitting with the men but um what why isn't there more counselors in prison that do the work that you do i don't i don't i'm not i'm not sure if it was in their interest ever to have men and women come home from incarceration especially yeah. as lifers i remember one of the first when i first got off the bus at pelican bay um, after being sentenced to life, the sergeant, when we got off the bus, 
he lined us up outside. All of us had life right there. And he said, I want to personally welcome you here to the prison. And I want to personally thank you for whatever you did. Because with your life sentences, you have given me and my men here secure work for the rest of your lives. That's That was his conversation of welcome to prison to us. Oh, can you imagine that? It's no different than being celebratory about men's slavery, right? Oh, but that's that's basically what it is. We were, we were chattel. We were uh, uh, a way for them to continue to live and thrive off the lives of human beings. Human beings that, that, that yes, made terrible choices and done terrible things, but to look at us in that, that dehumanizing way. Yeah, that's very dehumanizing. And, you know, I think a lot of our community, like the Vietnamese American community, when we think about incarceration, we think those men deserve it. Why are we working to understand this? Why are we working to fix this problem when you do a crime you just do the time and enough you know throw the keys away but it's so much more complex than this aren't it isn't it well and especially being vietnamese and our culture i i think is the least accepting of it's almost like stigma i mean to this day she, she doesn't want to tell her friends that i was incarcerated she used to tell them i was away in college um yeah i think um funny story is i remember when my book came out that there was a um, in Anaheim. There was a, a the Anaheim Library was doing a feature on getting a panel of uh, Asian American authors, and I saw the panel, and it was headed by uh, unity organizer, and she said, "Would I be interested in getting on the panel to speak with other Asian authors?" I said, "I would definitely be interested." I go, but I'm pretty sure. Your organizers will not want me there. And she's like, what do you mean? This is an amazing book. And I said, I'm just, I just know my people. Unfortunately, I know the culture and I know the stigma around incarceration. I don't think they'll want me there. She said, let me reach out to them. Never heard back. I had asked, followed up with her. And she's like, oh, let me follow up again. Never heard. So unfortunately, uh, uh, incarceration for each culture, and in our peace culture, uh, unfortunately, they're very... Um, unforgiving and unwilling to to understand the journey and understand the challenges especially men and women coming home from incarceration like you know what if if you believe in second chances if you believe that they've done their time then why do they still have to face second life sentence now thank you for listening to the vietnamese with kenneth win the vietnamese is produced by Brittany tran special thanks to jane win catherine win tina fam sydney jamie and crystal trin Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts.